chapter 18 I seen your next letter very late, saying how you're coming to visit Monday. The relief is more than I can bear. Never mind. I offer thanks to our Lord in heaven above for giving me this heads up about you. Because without his divine interventionism, there won't have been no time for me to get things ready. If it wasn't for my little birdies, I won't have heard nothing about this, your first coming. No one would have said. Normally, the frickin' Nesitron never lets me see what you wrote to me so soon after you posted it. Fucking ignorant shower is what he is. It takes him longer than it takes me to read my letters. I told you how I get my little birdies coming and going. They whisper in my ears. I do them favors. This busy being is what makes the world go in circles. Of course, when it's finally said and done, you might call them little birdies, but let's be honest, blokes is blokes. What happened was, one of these blokes with wings on flaps up and lands on my landing. I'm sweeping dust from one end to the other. He goes, look what I got for you, Marley. He waves your letter at me with sly winking. Shall I write his name out loud? Shall I? Here. Ferkinesian, would you like to know who the treasonous shit among your minions is? See if you can guess. Are you ripping your hairs out yet? What I can tell you is this. There is much more than just one treasonous shit. Because all your blokes is looking for favors and whatnot on a working day. So don't go pulling out too many hairs just yet. You need to save a few for the next clues I give. And besides, have you seen how your hairs is too oily to get a good grip? How can you live with that, Furkineski, you swamp dweller? Don't you fucking wash? Forgive me, Otto, ignoring you. It is shameful in this, my letter to you, which is meant for your eyes only. If you were sitting here now, what I would do is turn my shoulders on the nosy prick what goes by the name of Firkin Nostrils. Together, we would blank his ignorant snorting. I would mention most casual in our private conversation about my latest relations with another birdie bloke looking for benefits. This one is called Officer Blank Blank. He come up this morning and give me a nice preview of what you said in your letter, all about coming for a visit, which is fucking fantastico. Otherwise, I won't have known nothing about it, and I won't have been able to do my preparations. Then, after I seen your next letter, what Officer Blank done was pop it back into security for our nosy Nessitron to get on with the business of reading it for himself. Only before he'd done that, me and this officer sneaks into a room where they store stuff like mops and tin pails for the likes of me to clean with. He's got his keys out. Straight away he's jangling them in the door so we can get on with something sordid in private. All too eager beaver he was. 
He's got his hands on my boobies while I ain't even finished reading what you said yet. He thinks it's him making me sigh, but it ain't. It's your words, Otto. Your words all about your first coming. What it means is, the Lord's prophecy is upon us. By Monday, you will know what I know. You will know about my life. You will know what happened to my poor sister. Most satisfactory of all, you will know how to get me out of this shithole. Then I looks over the rest of what you wrote, which is what I try doing with all your letters, because I respect what you say, even if I am bullshit as bricks. Only, while the birdie bloke I'm calling Officer Blank does his fondling and dropping his boxers, I can't help seeing the bleak face with eyes you do in all your signatures. Ever since I first seen it, I've been hunting for meanings in it. Have you always done it like that? I will grant it's devilish cleverish. Although you might lighten up a bit. Because being in a slump all day long ain't what a girl doing life expects from her solicitor. To be honest, I wrote to loads of other briefs before you. They all wrote back and said fuck off. When you wrote back and said fuck off, I told myself fuck you. Which is what I said about all the other nice and polite letters I got. It was the Holy Father himself who told me to think again. He pointed out your clever doodle. He showed how it was more a sign than a signature. It was an omen. It meant how serious he was. And that's when the Holy Fatherness told his prophecy right in my head. What he said was, Behold the sour face of your Savior, Marley. First there will be a first coming. After that, there will be a second coming. And lo, after your Savior's second coming, your poor soul will be saved. While we was doing my end of the bargain, I showed your doodle face to Officer Brack. He's working up a sweat doing sleazies. I go, Oi, look at this. My new solicitor signs his name O dot L dot. I says, he does the O first. Then he does the L inside the O. I says, can you see how he puts two I dots either side of the L so it comes out like a smiley face without the smile? Only Mr. Rack ain't too bothered. He ain't even paying attention. He don't care how you draw pictures of your foreign names or how you hide your sorry looks inside them. So I says, you see this, officer? I'm guessing the meaning behind the smiley face with no smile is, my new solicitor don't find nothing the least bit funny and no mistaken. I do like a bloke that gets to the point, don't you? Soon after I says this, our bargaining was done. Which only means I was done paying for the privilege of reading my own post. Then Officer Brock says it's time for lockup. And then, before he slams my door shut, the prick looks at me in the face and says, You ain't natural, you know that. Was this called for? No. 
I told him in many colorful variations how not only was he a sheep fucker, but how his paternals were sheep fuckers before him, all the way back to the first sheep fucker his family ever spawned in the Stone Age. I said, that's how come his hair was so curly. That's how come he bleats the whole fucking time, I goes. There, Mr. Loch Ness Monster of the Deepness, can you work out who I've been talking about now? And while you're at it, why don't you see if ex-officer Gurry Block would like to go shaft himself up the backside as you shove him out the front gates? I mean to say, telling a girl she ain't natural, that she fakes it, telling me I'm a fucking faker, the cheek. Even you will grant, Otto. No one can't help how they got made. It weren't my fault Officer Black got his rash after what he'd done. Blah, 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 blah. And yes, maybe I didn't give it my B and end all. But you don't go telling a girl she ain't natural and hope to get away with it. I was still stewing in my cell for ages after. So, to ease my temper, I wrote down a poem. This one is for your eyes only, but I will show it to you anyway. I call it Two Birds. The reason is obvious once you worked it out. First thing you see is two me's. We're stood there together like trees. Then one gets chopped down and the other is found all by herself on her knees. The one that is left is alone, but all that is left is a clone. Till she takes her last breath, she can't live with that death, which makes it two birds with one stone. Good, ain't it? It's about everything what's happened. Scarly teached me how to write stuff so no one understands. If I were to tell you everything that's happened in words what makes sense, you wouldn't believe none of it. You would say, what? You fucking fibber. But no, I ain't fucking fibbing, Otto. And soon enough, it will be you and me and your first coming. Then I will tell you the whole truth and nothing but, and you will know how strange things can get. While we're on the subject of faking it, what people don't realize is this. I got motions too. Even if I am Balshi. If I could, I would cry at night. Only, I suffer with silence. But you'll see. Soon I won't be so silent no more. You will know all. You will know how the life on my insides is driving me up the walls each day I'm banged up for something that weren't my doing. I will end now with the word Scarly used about the scariness of being so many people. What gave her sleepless nights was how people who hide behind the scarlet cloak never get found again. Did I tell you that? It's all in a poem you ain't seen called Secret Scarlet. Scarly liked the name I give her because it rhymes with Charlie. She filched the title Secret Scarlet off Dan Juan, who is a dead Spaniard. Here's how Dan's words go. The Scarlet Cloak, alas, 
unclosed with rigor, presents the problem of a double figure. Presents the problem of a double figure. I was sidestepped by hundreds of faces while I waited for you. It was unsettling. I can be uncomfortable in overcrowded places. The presence of so many and the cacophony they make produce apprehensions that I suffered with even more in London. I couldn't get used to the enormity of the city. Each looming pair of eyes was the visible part of a maze of connections, all of them trying to ensnare me. The poet Wordsworth wrote about the majesty of Westminster Bridge. It was something like, dull would he be of soul who could pass by a river so touching in its majesty. Well, my dull soul could only focus on the one tangible connection I needed to make. By then you were five minutes late. I stood near the tube entrance on the north side of the bridge. Across the road, Parliament, monumentally oblivious to the life gorging around its footings. There was still plenty of daylight for the rush hour. People surged along in subdued clothing that seemed to match their temperament. I followed this rule. I changed into my only tailored suit, which I usually wore for court hearings. It was black with pinstripes running vertically. I had a fresh white shirt on. My shoes were polished. I'd brushed my hair. I'd applied plenty of deodorant. I kept looking at the river to calm myself. The slant of the sunlight streaking away from the water blinded me each time I stared. Squinting, hands over my eyes, I forced myself to look anyway and practiced smiling at you. I realized I wasn't used to smiling. In the eighteenth letter, Molly seemed to get it. Her speculation, taken from my signature, was that I was melancholic. This only made me self-conscious, maybe even morose. As a concession to the warmer temperatures, I removed my tie and folded it into the top pocket of my jacket. This seemed to me a jaunty thing to do. At some point, as my nerves became saturated, I took out my phone and called Louise Gross. I was able to make contact with her straight away. She was surprised to hear I was in London. She said it would be a good idea for us to meet. She was at that point in her account to me when she discovers Charlotte has been murdered. If she was willing to continue with it, I wanted to give her whatever support I could in person. Obviously, I didn't let on that I was standing by Westminster Bridge at that moment, having a mild panic attack, 
waiting for my daughter, whom I hadn't seen since she was a child. Louise suggested meeting at her home the following morning. This seemed fine to me, as I intended to spend the rest of the next day with you. I returned my phone to the inner breast pocket of my jacket. I straightened my jacket. As I did this, I found myself rushing back to the uneasiness I'd only just managed to suppress, that I might have to wait forever among these swirls of soberly clad people, dictating every thought I had. You came out of nowhere. That's how it seemed. Even when you were standing right in front of me, I was too jittery to be immediately conscious of the only face that really mattered. I may have been aware of your approach, just as I would have been aware of the smells and clatter of the traffic, or the fall of nearby footsteps, or birds screeching in the trees, without registering any of it. Our eyes met. I knew without thinking it was you. You look like me. What I mean is, despite your age and sex, you bear more than a passing resemblance to me. I recognized myself in your forehead and the dimple under your nose. But in the shape of your smile, I saw your mother. There wasn't time to explore each other's faces. We quickly lurched beyond our recognition of one another into the broken past. Christ, we shook hands. The color of your eyes are the same as mine, reddish-brown with the same green flecks. I felt myself smiling, or trying to. You were definitely smiling as we said hello. I thought we shouldn't be shaking hands, but we hadn't hugged since you were tiny. If I remember rightly, our hug half-materialized as a fumbling attempt to get beyond the handshake. It ended with a peck on the cheek. I noticed you were dressed much like everyone else around Parliament that evening. You had a dark skirt on with a pretty white blouse. It had frills on the collar. I presumed you'd come straight from some office. That's when you told me you'd taken an internship with a firm of solicitors. This should have floored me, but I couldn't absorb it. As we walked over the bridge, I began to think you were more like your mother than me. You have her beauty. Your hair is exactly the same. You walk the same way. It's a style of walking that never matched mine. Fast to my slow. Whenever you said something, it was with the same rapid diction Marie always had. Despite your light tone and everything you said, I guessed you must be wary and I completely understood. We spoke in German. I was embarrassed. I couldn't believe I'd forgotten so much of my language. I struggled for words when for once I really needed them. I wanted to walk more languidly, but I had to quicken my pace to keep up with you. I remember thinking we'd embarked on a puzzle with thousands of pieces spread over the ground. And because the past between us was so shattered, neither of us could really think where to start. I know next to nothing about your life, yet I feel so close to you. What little I was aware of then, Marie had told me a few years back when she visited me in hospital. 
I knew you'd been studying law, of course. There was the Hungarian boyfriend I was aware of, called Zolt. I was even aware you were considering a career as a judge. I didn't say anything when you told me you'd given that up because it would have meant staying in Vienna over the summer. But was that really the reason? I didn't want to pry, but I did wonder. We ended up in an expensive restaurant. By the time we were looking at each other over the table, the silences were getting longer. It was you who got the conversation going by asking about me. Your first questions were deceptive. They seemed trivial. How many hours had the journey to London taken? Had it been a pleasant trip? But your efforts really did calm me. I know now that you have the intelligence to try to look beyond the past. Behind the first sips of a gin and tonic, you asked what had happened to me. The question was too open. I didn't answer directly. I couldn't. But I did tell you I was writing a book, which surprised you, if that's what the arching of your eyebrows meant. It was an expression your mother would have come up with, and frequently did. Funnily enough, this reaction encouraged me too. It enabled me to settle more comfortably into our first argument. You wanted to know what the book was called, and I couldn't say. Do you remember? I have no idea what it's called. You must know. I don't even know if it needs a title. Every book needs a title. There's a book called A Book Without a Title. That's a title. It's more a paradox pretending to be a title. Okay, so what's your paradox pretending to be a title? If I had to give it a title, it would be in English. You're not writing your book in German? No. Why? English is the language I learned to be a lawyer in. Your book's about being a lawyer. It's more about why I shouldn't be one. The haggling nature of our relationship would be established in these first exchanges, wouldn't you say? It was as if we decided that there should be a gentle but combative side to our discussions. Now and then, I was able to give you a bit of your own medicine. I asked how the internship was going. You said it was boring. You said it was mainly photocopying and making mugs of tea. You couldn't understand the tremendous fuss the English make over mugs of tea. Your answers had a curious mixture of emotions. On the one hand, you made no secret of the fact that you felt stuck. On the other hand, you seemed proud to be working in a firm of commercial lawyers. Most of the lawyers came into the office hungover, you said. The first thing they did was yell for tea. They talked about money all day. So... I obviously asked, why are you doing it? That's when you said you needed to get away from Vienna. I really wanted to know more, but then you said you wanted to find out about me. It was too many years since I'd had such a direct conversation with anyone. Of course, there were many doors for us to open. What I'd find beyond each of those doors were traces of your resentment mingled with your curiosity. Marie was still living with Bartek, you said. 
When you had to get away from Vienna, did you mean you wanted to get away from him? You called him the Colonel. You told me Jacob was becoming introverted, but he did everything the Colonel said. Let me tell you something, Izzy. The pain of listening to you talk about all of this was indescribable. I can't tell you why. There was nothing I could say then, and there's nothing I can say now. But it makes me feel guilty and dejected. Do you remember when you talked about the photograph? You said there was only one photograph of me that you knew of. Marie had kept it all these years. It was a profile taken on a mountain summit. I knew exactly the photograph you meant. I was overwhelmed the moment you brought it up. That's why I didn't say anything. I should have, I know. There is so much to tell you. Did you know it was taken in 1999? Marie and I were on a short break in Salzburg. We'd hiked up the mountain, the Untersberg. Marie was pregnant with you. All we talked about for six hours was what we should call you. When we got to the top, I started clowning around, leaning too far over a railing. That's when your mother took the picture. I could have told you more, so much more, but I didn't know how. You mentioned that as you grew up, you realized you were put off by my smile in the photograph. At some point, you decided it was too sardonic. There came a time when you didn't want to look at it at all. Jacob was the same, you told me. It was like there was nothing to get to know. Along with a few remarks your mother may have let slip over the years, the issue of your missing father was gradually wrapped in tissue, to be taken out every once in a while and studied dispassionately. You said you and Jacob had forgotten what I was supposed to mean to you. Do you know what? The first thing I saw when I came out of a coma was your mother. I thought everything would turn out right all of a sudden. I don't know what I was thinking, but I knew exactly what was going to happen. I really did. It was wonderful seeing your mother again. I hadn't realized how upset you were that she didn't take you to England with her. I guess I was in no position to complain anyway. And then, sitting there, picking at our food, we had that brief exchange, which meant everything. I didn't want her to leave. You're the one that left. You sound just like her. Tell me why you left. I can't. Why not? I really can't. You must have some idea. I had to work things out. So what did you work out? That's the one question I still can't answer. It occurred to me to say that I worked out I was dead all along. But I preferred any silence to this kind of response. The oblique, the mysterious. You told me that Jacob hates me. I don't know why I found that funny. For the first time I smiled without thinking I had to. And then you smiled back. Together, through a process of our own making, 
I felt we were beginning to establish an understanding. I don't want to be wrong about this. I really don't. Ever. I ordered the bill and paid as if I wasn't shocked at the price. Once we were outside and my expressions could be less easily examined, I relaxed a little. Our words came out of nowhere. We walked along the river from streetlight to streetlight. It was pleasant. We strolled towards Blackfriars Tube. There was a new symmetry to the way we walked. Did you notice? Until I casually mentioned your boyfriend. Then your pace quickened. He didn't want me to come here. Why not? I don't know. You must know what he told you. He made a thing about it. A thing? Yes. I decided not to ask about this. I should have, but I was already alarmed enough. I don't suppose you would have let me in on the secret. Instead, I slowed down and let you walk ahead. By doing this, I could exert some restraint on your pace. You slowed down to let me catch up. As we arrived at the underground, our walk was more synchronous again. We were about to part company when you made your surprise observation. It seems you've changed a lot since hospital. I still have difficulties, I said. What kind? Existential. You think you're getting too old? Maybe too skeptical? It sounds like you don't like being a lawyer. Dear Izzy, I could have launched into a book about this. I already had. I'd been writing my book secretly for about 18 months by then. It was nearly finished. But again, I said nothing. I didn't even want to talk. It seemed facile to say anything about my stupid book when we were about to part. I avoided your remark by saying there were some things about being a lawyer I still enjoyed. You wanted to know what. It was as if you'd formed the view that I was no longer capable of enjoying myself. So I began to speak about my work as an appeals lawyer. In the most casual way, we digressed from the issues that had been holding us in check all evening to Marley's case. I didn't mention Marley by name, not then, but I gave you a brief account of the story of the twins, that one of them had been murdered and the other was in prison for it. I spoke generally about the legally aided work I'd been doing for the surviving twin. You were fascinated in a way I could never have anticipated. Your questions became more rapid and concise, each one prizing the subject open more. Twenty minutes later, we were still in the entrance hall to the station. As I answered each question, it gave me so much pleasure to observe the fixed expression on your face. So that we could continue to talk, we edged ourselves over to one side of the brightly lit concourse. You wanted to know if there was anything you could read. I mentioned the letters I'd been receiving, but told you that because of client confidentiality, I couldn't show them to you. There is no question, though, that I was extremely buoyed by your interest. As you continued to throw out more questions, I became more responsive and animated. 
I might have been showing off when I said that it was my intention the following morning to interview a woman who was close to the case. You wanted to sit in. I don't think that would be good, I said. Why not? It's been an upheaval for her. I won't say anything. It's not you I'm worried about. What's the problem, then? Your presence might make her nervous, I said. What about your... What about your client? What about her? Will you be visiting her? I've arranged to see her Monday. Can I come to that? How would it work? Tell her I'm your assistant. You can't be my assistant. I'm a lawyer. You're a law student. My English is good. What about your internship? What about it? The truth is, I was dominated by personal urges. I desperately wanted to say yes. It wasn't just a pedagogic urge to give you more than you were getting as an intern with commercial solicitors. I had a fatherly urge to make up for all the lost time in our lives. Even though the faintest of alarms had been triggered in me, I found myself nodding in agreement. The next day I would visit Louise on my own. You and I would meet again afterwards for our first full day together. By then, I would have my own copy of Charlotte's fated notebook. Within its pages were clues that would lead you to the extraordinary idea that, despite her dishonesty, Molly had a case to appeal her conviction after all. <laughs>